0: Hello, this is Ishta and welcome to Why Think? Why Think is an explanation of the news and taking you deeper into the story. Today we're talking about the Democratic National Convention, where they decide the presidential nominee for the Democratic Party. Um, Today I'm with New Ben, my researcher at Why Think, to discuss the DNC. Um, So let's get started about where we are in the presidential debate how is Trump sitting at the moment, you Ben?
1: I think what we can see is that Trump is at a point where he's getting quite worried with his position as the incumbent, which the majority of the part when it comes to US elections, the incumbent usually has a lead that's given him as a grace period for the four or three, three, three to four years that he's been in power. But Trump obviously has had a lot of controversies not just in relation to um, his own administration's handling of things like the Russia the Russia so-called host as he calls it, you know, collusion with Russia, not just in relation to the number of Trump associates who've been arrested, but now in relation to the handling of the pandemic. At last that I checked, um, 181,000 Americans have now died as a result of COVID-19. And so going into this, Trump is already on the left foot. Biden is showing a 10-point lead in a lot of places, and to the point where even Fox News, which tends to try and, um, I guess, soften the blow of what's happening with the Democratic Party, is getting to the point where they have to acknowledge that Biden is, in fact, in this with a good chance. Now, of course, we hesitate, many on the left, whether they're in the US or here, hesitate to make that assumption that Biden will win because of the shock that we suffered in 2016, you know. At that period of time, most people assume that Hillary was going to win by a landslide. But in saying that, I think Trump and his administration are actually quite worried because this is seeming like it could be a very, very difficult race for them to win. So many things would have to align that Trump's um, current issues as an administration would have to essentially be... Framed in the most perfect way for them to even to be able to pull a win out of this, particularly. To yeah. The, yeah. In recent times. I mean, they're,
0: yeah, they're, yeah, they're just, they're really behind in the moment. And like, particularly just mm-hmm. looking at the polls already, it looks like the general public is mm-hmm. not behind them anymore. The, like, Biden has an eight point average. Yeah. Um, he's ahead in many of the um, seats he won, Trump won in 2016, like the Rust Belt sort of seats. Yeah. Um, uh yeah and he's- you wrote right, like you said, he seems sort of desperate um yeah. and he's done why well, I wrote an article the other week about the Swan trump interview mm-hmm. um and he's doing a bunch of sit down interviews of journalists, which he's never quite done before to sort of build up something, so yeah. um he's desperate to get something at the moment um
1: but I- in particular we have to make the point that in relation to the democratic national convention on august 17 that biden was able to distinguish himself as a real presidential candidate and although the bar has been set so low that Biden's eloquence and his ability to form complete sentences was considered so presidential this if anything shows the contrast with trump in regards to the fact that he's tried to i guess establish and portray um, Biden as this bumbling fool, but that backfires, given his own appearances and his lack of coherence when it comes to dealing with the media, his lack of knowledge, his basically his propensity to actually ignore knowledge and to sort of revel in that, to try and call Biden a bumbling fool seems to be backfiring. And so I think what we're seeing from the Trump end of things is a clear lack of strategy with how they were going to approach this. And had COVID-19 potentially not had the impact that it had in the U S Trump might've been able to get away with his usual sleepy Joe Biden comments. But as it stands, it's we're in a position now where people are afraid people are rightfully angered by the handling of the pandemic and the shenanigans that Trump usually gets away with, which are these tweets that are Mm. sent out at 3 AM, these sort of cruel names are no longer sticking.
0: I just want to correct myself. In in our last chat, I said that a quarter of Americans knew that uh, someone who had COVID, Mm -hmm. now it's half.
2: Which is ridiculous (laughs) at this point. It's
0: incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's really quite incredible. But let's go on to the VP choice. So Biden decided on Kamala Harris after much decision-making. There was a few other choices, but I felt like it was pretty concrete for the most part, what do you think?
1: I think, in a way, we're in that period of time where Kamala Harris represents the safe choice. Biden has been not particularly popular with the progressive left. Those who would have wanted Bernie to be the nominee have never really seen to seen Biden as anything that would even they would even consider left, especially on a lot of issues when it comes to um, criminal reform, criminal justice reform, when it comes to healthcare. And so because there's a lot to be desired in Biden, the candidate by choosing Kamala, I think Biden was able to kind of give himself a little bit of leeway with the left. And Mm. I hate to say this, but again, with the diversity aspect, Kamala Harris is a woman, obviously, on top of that, she's black and she's also Asian. And so given this sort of triple threat almost to be able to say that, look, we understand that the future of the Democratic Party is no longer old white men. Here is, you know, this woman who represents so many aspects of the DNC and the progressive left's views about what America needs to represent. By choosing Kamala, Biden was able to take off some of that sort of, I guess, opposition. But in saying that as well, Kamala Harris represents a safe choice again, because the fact is her views, although tending, tending to sort of lean towards the left, for example, on her voting record, in comparison to um, Bernie Sanders, they've agreed on 93% of issues, yeah? Mm. In saying that, she also has a significant history in law enforcement. And so when you come to the question of the Trump administration trying to paint the Democratic Party as a socialist, Antifa, who want to tear down the American dream, choosing someone whose last election bid faltered because she was called a cop is... Mm kind of pretty much destroys a lot of that argument, that she is this socialist left who has no respect for blue lives. Now, she was a district attorney from, I'm not sure, from 2004 until 2011 in San Francisco. She was the attorney general in California from 2011 to 2017. So she has a strong history of law enforcement. Now, on the one hand, this is useful for Biden in allying the fears of people who are on the right who are finding themselves unable to vote for Trump. This gives those people confidence to be able to vote for Biden. On the other hand, the progressive left, who's having a lot of issues right now with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, could also use this as a reason not to vote for Biden. But mm. in saying that, I think it's safe to say that for many people at this point, a wet rag would be better than Donald Trump. And yeah. so in many people's minds, in many progressives' minds, this may be a case of making uh, the choice of so-called lesser of two equals.
0: I think I think you pin, pinpointed it there with the Black Lives Matter. Like I I think that, like that was a big part of it to sort of like shore up that base. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and also I think she's she's a candidate of the de- Democratic establishment, mm-hmm. um, and people sort of forget that the Democratic establishment is quite left mm-hmm. anyway, and that's what they want to put into policy. Yeah. So Kamala is like a good choice in that respect what i think i would sort of disagree why um I'm, I'm a bit unsure about is that her performance in the presidential election and the debates i thought she was probably one of the weaker candidates yeah um but like i don't know it seems like a fairly good choice um you can't really yeah put it down
1: one comment that I'd make in relation to what you've just said, which is that Kamala makes an obvious choice in terms of shoring up the BLM side of the base, it's not necessarily yeah. because of Kamala's blackness. If anything, Biden himself yeah. enjoys a wide margin of favor in African American communities. Him having been the VP for Barack Obama, he's already got an established relationship with black communities. So I think, in more so, to be more specific, maybe this is a concession to the black women base. Who tend to overwhelmingly have been the sort of the swing vote in relation to Democratic candidates around the US. So it's more so, maybe from a more insular perspective, it's more to do with the black women rather than it is to do with BLM. Because Biden has already enjoyed that high that he gets from having been associated with Obama. So the the black vote was never really in question in relation to that. What I'm saying is that this makes it seem that there is more of a concerted effort. To actually make changes that are representative of the party and to also say, look, black women, we understand, we hear you, you know, you have represented and pushed mm. for democratic candidates wherever you are. And this is almost a concession to say, look, here is a capable black woman. It's not simply her blackness, having had a long history as a DA and an attorney general and having prosecutorial yeah. experience makes her not only a capable candidate in regards to merit but also makes her an attractive candidate in regards to shoring up the black women's vote. So it's already there, but it's more so to say that in future, this is what we see the party and where it's, where it's going. And I think in relation to that comment that you said about her performance during a presidential bid, I will have to agree that obviously, having not performed so well in comparison to other candidates, that this might seem like a questionable choice. But I think we have to look at this from a strategic perspective. If... Biden had gone with someone like Elizabeth Warren, who did better, yeah? Mm. Elizabeth Warren already has a long history with the Trump administration. The Trump administration, oh, would with Trump himself, his strategies against Elizabeth Warren have seemed to actually stick, you know, calling her Poga Hunters, which is disgusting, calling mm. out her ethnic makeup, attacking her on her policies as too far left, these seem to be effective targets against Warren. Now, Kamala Harris doesn't have that history. So in this sense, although Elizabeth Warren would have made more sense in terms of a success in her presidential bid, she would have been a liability as a VP. And if we look at Susan Rice, yeah. similarly. So I think if anything, by choosing this, the Biden campaign has made it difficult for the Trump administration to formulate a strategy which to attack Kamala is. And we've seen this with the tweets that have been sent out. We have right wing pundits trying kind to of question whether Kamala Harris is black enough you know, referring to her Jamaican heritage. We have people questioning whether she can be considered black because she's half Indian. So basically their strategy to try and attack Kamala Harris, if anything, is a lot... <laughs> it's, it's,
0: the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the whole birthism thing exactly. again with yeah. Obama, right? Like...
1: Yeah. So it's like we <laughs> and she was considered black enough when it came to other aspects of criticising her voting record. But so far now they think that they can try and credibly build a case to say that she's not an American black. And I quote... People have said she is not the right type of black. That language, the fact that lack lack of self awareness of referring to people as blacks or a black or she's mm. not an American black, if anything, is showing that this birtherism strategy is not going to work for them. Where at a period of time where BLM is gaining quite the momentum, where at a mm. period of time where birtherism has been exposed for the racist and racist and you know dehumanizing lie that it is. And so to try Mm. and go over the strategy with Kamala Harris might actually backfire in relation Mm. to the Trump campaign. And so they're going to have to try and reformulate another strategy to attack her on. And if it's to call her a leftist, then, again, her history in law enforcement would kind Mm. of make it difficult to try and make that socialist ideal stick, you know?
0: Yeah. I I think she's a good, in comparison to Biden, like uh, in, in the DNC, which we're about to talk about, She talked a bit about systematic racism in her speech, which I think is obviously going to probably come up a lot in the campaign. Um, So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where, like, I, I don't know whether Biden's really talked about Systematic racism, so so much. So it'd be interesting to see. But then again, I've seen Biden talk about new things now, and he he seems to be just talking about everything now. Yeah. He's taking ideas from everywhere; like he loves it. <laughs> um, but anyway, let's talk, let's talk about the DNC. Um, the DNC, it's it's very different this time. Usually, it's massive crowds, mm-hmm. a lot of yelling, like a lot of cheering um it's pretty dead this year with covid um they're doing it basically all from webcam um people have to do pre-recorded videos um yeah yeah, they i i thought it was interesting some of the speeches because they're very empty they're almost like in a big hole or like i'm not quite sure where they were were in the convention center or something and it's quite it's almost like got this ghostly um effect um but yeah it was I just now want to talk about Biden's speech for a little bit i was I was actually very impressed by his speech um I thought it was actually probably the best speech out of all of them which is probably not that surprising but um, it was it was very strong it had like this light against darkness hope against hatred like um, sort of effect and then he did this thing which I found like like I just mentioned before where he sort of had this Thing where he did touch points on all the different issues, um, yeah. and obviously, he gave more time to some issues, um, mm. but he sort of covered a really broad range of issues, which I found quite fascinating. Um, so, he talked about unions, he talked about climate change, he talked about young people, um, he talked about um, black lives. Um, it also had a nice little backstory, which they did before his speech, um, yeah. where he talked about his stutter and his. Overcoming his stutter and blah blah blah, and he, you know his up, upbringing with his um, parents and his dad, and um, growing up in that that those circumstances. Um, yeah, what do you think?
1: I think you touched on something very important there, which was Biden was able to articulate a clear case for why he should be the president. Now, I wouldn't think mm. it's one of his best speeches. I think that we're so used to hearing. Rambling and incoherent speeches over the past <laughs> four years. That a parrot being able to speak well at this point—not to call the a parrot—would
0: be great, you know. But he—he wa- he was reading from a reading teleprompter. Yeah, like, I <laughs> that's. Well,
2: really, he
1: like, at least, he can at least read from a teleprompter, you know. It's
2: not yeah. like
0: he
1: constantly stumbles in words and makes you question his reading ability. But yeah. um, I think one of the things that I found really clear about this is that, like you said. Outlined a uh, clear idea of what his what his campaign is about. That they made those illusions, I don't know if you were able to pick those up, but you know, light over darkness. That's a clear tie back to a Mark King speech where he says, you mm. know, love hate hate cannot defeat hate, only love can. You know, light over darkness cannot defeat darkness, only light can.
0: Yeah. So talk talk about Michelle Obama's speech a little bit.
1: I think what struck people with Michelle Obama's speech is that. As people who followed her, um, her as the first lady have noticed, that she's constantly said that she's not a man of politics. Although she's been pushed by people to make more political statements, to even you know have a run at the presidency herself, she's made clear that that's not her ambition. You know? And so, for someone who obviously has such a light-handed approach to politics, to actually speak out so forcefully shows the gravity of the moment. And I think that's the strength of Michelle Obama's speech. She for the first time called Trump out by name. And she mm. said that you are not the man for this job. You are not the president for this job. You have not been able to rise to the occasion. She addressed her claims a while ago where she said, or her, I guess her her catchphrase of when they go low we go high and said that part of going high mm. is to come out fiercely in favor of justice and to come out and criticize basically that are wrong. And so basically she said, Well we've sat here and given President Trump the chance to rise to the occasion, to become the president that we hoped he would become. And not only has he not even met that, he's actually gone to a point where he's fell way below that mark.
0: I think you know? my my comment I, I just want to make is I think it's interesting the rhetoric um, from certain Democrats versus other Democrats, like um, in Sanders' speech, he describes um, Trump as afford- authoritarian, which I find very interesting difference to Obama, uh, Michelle, which that was more um, like the in- incompetence of mm-hmm. Trump, which I find quite interesting. It um, yeah. so le- seems like a differing sort of like criticism of Trump, um, mm-hmm. but I, f- I feel like the more like when they, they go into debates, I think they're going to use the more incompetence um, mm-hmm. to criticise him. And I think that's what Biden's already doing and mm-hmm. probably doing it quite well because he's he's not quite, he's not sleepy <laughs> at the <Yeah>. moment. So, <laughs> <laughs> I
1: have, yeah. From a strategic perspective, I understand why they would do this. Because although you and I can agree that Trump has basically, all the basic components to be described as a fascist and an authoritarian and a dictator in the making. These terms aren't helpful in bringing those voters who, who are reluctant to vote for the for the Democratic Party. You know, these are voters yeah. who voted for Trump in the previous election, and then they might be considering reconsidering their voting this time. Now, what you don't want to do is alienate them by saying you elected an authoritarian fascist dictator yeah because In that way, you reinforce this notion that the left is prone to hyperbole, that we're always comparing everyone to Nazis. And so, what Biden is doing by pointing out to the incompetence is that, look, I don't have to call him an authoritarian to note the fact that his voter suppression, his aims at trying to dismantle the postal service, his aims at attacking um, mail in ballots, his aims at attacking the notion that, you know, he he might think that he would have a a, a do-over in the election, his claims that he deserves four more years, even beyond this. I don't need to call out those things for what they are, which is authoritarian traits. I can just point out to the actual impact of voter suppression. And I think it's a very safe strategy for a democratic party that is looking to bring in voters, not only from their usual base, but to take them from
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I think one of the biggest downfalls of the Clinton campaign was when she called the Trump supporters deplorables, yes. and that just seemed to rally the base even more. Um, exactly. And I think that was a a terrible decision Don't in hindsight.
2: Down. Yeah.
0: Um. Anyway, so what should we talk about next? Um. Do you mm-hmm. want to talk about? Uh, I mean, we're sort of talking about Trump already. Do you want to sort of talk about the postal service? Yeah. To finish off?
1: Yeah. So what we've had in the past couple of months is a concerted effort by Trump himself to question the legitimacy of mail-in ballots and to question the notion that people may have to resort to mail-in ballots more often now due to the COVID-19 pandemic. When Trump's approach has been to say essentially that, you know, every man and his dog can get a ballot, you yeah? know? Now for the yeah. average person, and it's easy, it's easy to Google and find out, that no. Like absentee voting, which is essentially synonymous with mail-in ballots, you have to be registered, you have to request a ballot, and if your name doesn't appear in the registry, then that ballot has been valid. So no, you can't just put Fido the dog and he gets a vote. But yeah. What Trump's been trying to push for is at this point, I think he's realizing that there is a sort of an energized, an energy that's out there that wants him to lose, yeah? And that the mm. more people that have access to voting in different ways, the more votes might not come out in his favor. And it's interesting that the Republican Party, this is something that Trump has in common with them, all the, when you call them the true Republican is that when it comes to winning elections, they tend to try and suppress the votes rather than solicit the votes, you yeah? know? Rather mm. than appeal to these voters, they would rather make voting more difficult, you yeah? know? what we've had is the postmaster general was a Trump appointee, Louis DeJoyce, who has authorized the removal of sorting machines and mailboxes, potentially. Like, literally removing mailboxes and sorting machines. Postal service that has been part of the Constitution since the founding of the United Nations. You know that is something that the founders saw that it was so important that they enshrined it in the Constitution. So in removing or trying to cut the budget for the USPS, in removing sorting machines, in removing mailboxes, essentially what they're trying to do is to cripple the capacity of the USPS to deal with mail and ballots. The problem with this is obviously people are very attached to USPS, uh, USPS and that. Uh, it is an institution and an icon of the United States that has a lot of people supporting including Republicans who've attacked Louis DeJoy's um, attempts to do this, with Trump people have attacked Trump's attempts to do this. We recently had, just in the past couple of days, um, a Senate bill that would give the USPS twenty five billion pass, which to yeah to one fifty six.
0: Can I uh, just talk about this issue a little bit? Um, because it is it is a really complicated issue. And I think part of it is that the Postal Service has been so underfunded mm-hmm. for the past, like, so many years. Yeah. Um, and then it's got to this point where, like, COVID's hit. And they're like, all right, we need all these ballots and stuff ready to go. And so what happened was the Postal Service actually sent, sent out a memo to the governors saying... Mm-hmm. We can't, you know, we can't, there was as a warning that like they can't actually handle this amount of votes, mm-hmm. um, which leads us to the Senate bill where they're trying to fund the Postal Service mm-hmm. to be able to handle this capacity. Um, yeah. Because the the problem is we're having at the moment is if it gets to the point in the election um, and they, they can't process those votes quick enough because the mail service is so slow um, as it's becoming, is, is that they'll get to the dates where the electoral college needs to meet and then the electoral college can actually vote before the mail ballots are actually there, which is the, <laughs> the crazy thing about all of this. Like, it's, it's just nuts. But um, Yeah. I think
1: to say yeah. That, um, one thing that I would like to clarify here is that in relation to the capacity of the usps part of that was it being crippled by a decision under the bush administration to require the usps to pay pensions 75 years in advance yeah
2: yeah yeah yeah, i heard
1: that they'd already crippled the capacity of the USPS, usps which before this had been running at a consistent profit yeah And so the right has has been pushing for the USPS to be privatized. Have said that they don't see why this organization should have a monopoly on mail. First of all, it's not a private organization because the Constitution is trying to, yeah. And to ask the USPS to run at a profit is ridiculous. But on top of that, Mm. the USPS managed to meet this, and now once it managed to meet this, it was once again crippled by the 75-year pension plan. So what we have. Of this is that it's interesting because I believe that it's a, it's a crazy problem because the problem is it's a creative problem, it's a manufactured problem. So, Trump has called out the capacity of the USPS to handle mail in ballots by saying that it's open to being rigged, although there's no evidence for this. Trump has called out the capacity of USPS
2: yeah.
1: to handle the sorting of this mail integrity again, no evidence for this. And then proceeded to
0: create the conditions that would yeah it's really,
1: to make it true incredible to do all those
0: things. I might, I just to to finish us off a little bit. Like my my last comp- comment is to just sort of contrast it a bit with Biden again, and like I I think it's interesting because I think what the pandemic has shown that Americans um, sort of realize how important government is in people's lives and i think that's that's a really interesting change in the aspect because usually americans are very like free willed um sort of liberal like they don't want government in their business um and it does seem like a like a fundamental change um in in americans and their thinking about government Um, and I think Biden sort of represents that a lot, like, and he's so, he, he's very pro government. like, he's very, he has been government for such a long time. He believes strongly in it. Mm -hmm. Um, people are saying that this is really like FDR sort of reforms that, which are happening like Mm -hmm. trillions of dollars towards climate change and all these like massive policy platforms. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's pretty groundbreaking stuff. I mean, and it's also interesting the way I think that they communicate it. um, And there's a lot of comment about this at the moment that these are really groundbreaking um, reforms, but the way they talk about them is actually quite moderate. Mm. Like in some ways, like they're just, they're not trying to overwhelm people. Like we don't have this socialist agenda going on. (laughs) Like it's just, yeah, They're they're calling it build back better. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not the greatest term ever, but you know hey, we that's have what they go
1: with the first <laughs> lady, So I think anything is better than the best. So
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: I think I kind of have to agree with that formulation and disagree at the same time. Yeah, I'm a contrarian. But yeah. my disagreement is, first of all, I don't think that these reforms are as revolutionary as they're made out to be. I think we need to remember that the U.S. in comparison to the rest of the Western world is quite right, like what they would consider left in the U.S. would be centre-right in most countries, including Australia, you know? And what, we would, what they would consider left, you know, for us, again, it's, it's, it's a strange dichotomy. Bernie in Australia yeah. would be centre-left, you know, maybe yeah. you know, a little off-centre-left, yeah? But to Americans, he's considered an extreme radical, a leftist radical. Mm. So I think these reforms, first of all, I think you always have to look at a campaign as a series of wish lists and then as we go through a presidency, obviously those things get watered down. So reforms in relation to health care are not that extreme, you know, universal healthcare for all is mm. what you and I enjoy in Australia. It's what Canada enjoys, it's what New Zealand enjoys, so America, if anything is coming on par with the rest of the
0: world i i think I think that was probably the biggest downfall of his platform was probably not embracing Medicare for all. I was actually quite surprised that he didn't um end up embracing that on the policy platform
1: It's not that radical, I think even in relation to say the green New Deal and reforms in relation to the um to the environment. These are very moderate. Yeah, these are very moderate, and if anything, bring the U.S. back to the pre-Paris Accord momentum. Like if you remember when uh, Donald Trump removed the United States from the Paris Agreement, yeah, in those things, those were very those were the same ambitious goals the rest of the world continues to adhere to. So, if anything, when they say "build back better," they're basically saying let's reset to pre-Trump
0: it's nothing I do I do think it uh, is fairly left like it's it's more it's more left than Obama's platform I think (laughs) definitely so I I mean you're right like in terms of American politics it's yeah Um, but it it is it is a it's quite a big agenda I think Um, the amount
1: of it that is going to
0: be achieved. mm. And whether can they can whether they can actually achieve it is is yes. another thing as well, because it's really hard to get things done in America.
1: Yeah, so I always look at the, the genders as more of a, this is why you should vote for us. And then later on, when things get watered down, we get mere culpa, you know? My bad, we want this to be a lot more. It's basically that way where, you know, if you want 30 bucks from your parents, you ask them for freaking 70, you know?
2: Mm. And until so they're
1: like, how oh, dare you, this is ridiculous, blah, 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 just, just take 30, you know? You set the bar very high. <laughs> and so that when it's whittled down, it's basically, I feel like whittled down to what degree is the um, Biden platform that different. And I think the main part is maybe the explicit recognition of Black Lives Matter, yeah? The explicit, the explicit mm. recognition that we need criminal justice reform. And then we have to look at the way that the police and um, uh, the police are trained to deal with the public. I think COVID nineteen is obviously a unique issue, which may have forced some things further to the lesson in any other time. You know, the winds are looking good. Yeah,
0: yeah It is I, like I, 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 guess on the disagree. I'm not going to talk about it too much, but I, I think there's there's a lot of Sanders fans who felt like they lost out a lot and. What I would say to them is, like, I, th- I think with the task force that they set up between Biden and Sanders, yeah. that that had a massive um, yeah. effect on his policy platform. And I think yeah. that's something that they should be proud of, to yeah, be honest. Like, true. it's an amazing achievement um, yeah. to have that effect on American politics. Um, but, yeah, on, on that note, I'll end it. Um, yeah. Thanks for or listening to later. Why I Think. I'm Ishtar. And you are? Even
1: now <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, guys. Tune in next time.